Well, growing up, I played baseball. I played baseball a lot. And there was this one time where I was behind, at the batter's plate, and I was up, and I was, you know, and I wasn't the best hitter. And uh, I had two strikes against me. And so I'm standing there, and I'm determined I'm not going to go down, you know, looking at the ball. I'm going to go down swinging. And we had a runner on first base, and he was doing a big leadoff because he was either going to steal or he was going to wait for me to hit the ball, something. And so the second baseman was playing close to the base. And as the pitcher entered his windup, so if you're familiar with how it looks, if you've ever played baseball before, and so you're familiar with the view from the home plate, you're looking straight ahead at the pitcher, and the first rule of hitting is don't take your eye off the ball, right? Okay? And the second baseman moves closer to the base, which is actually right behind the pitcher linearly. And so... The second baseman, from my vantage point, is just off the shoulder of the pitcher from behind. And as the pitcher enters his windup to throw the ball, to throw the pitch, all of a sudden, the second baseman starts doing the floppy dance. And in a moment, that sudden unexpected movement caught my eye. And I looked over at the second baseman. What is he doing? And the next thing I knew, that ball was in motion here, and I had known I was going to swing, and, and I, I struck out. I violated the first rule of hitting. I took my eye off the ball, and I was distracted. Distractions serve a purpose to divert our attention and our focus, and they prevent us from success. In chapter 3, as we enter this part of the book, uh, we come to the next major section. The next major section in the book of Philippians starts here in chapter 3, verse 1, and it actually goes through chapter 4, verse 9. And you could say that the theme of this section is on our rejoicing in the Lord. In fact, you see that command as sort of the brackets of this section. You see rejoice in the Lord here in 3 verse 1, and then you see it at the end. And actually, I think it's verse 4 or 5. He goes on a little bit beyond. But the rejoicing in the Lord is the brackets to this section. He wants us to rejoice in the Lord as a way of life. And so this section then addresses the topic of how is it do we fight for and pursue joy in the midst of church life together, in the midst of the life that God has handed to us? How do we pursue joy and rejoicing in the Lord? You may recall from earlier in our series that the word translated rejoice is simply the verb form of the word joy. So to rejoice is simply to do joy. And joy, you may remember, is that positive, upbeat attitude that is based upon our confidence in the sure word of God concerning the past, the present, and the future. God is at work. He has done and said very specific things. And we have a confidence that in the midst of the turmoil of the present, He is doing something. And that brings hope and encouragement. And then furthermore, we know that he is up to something. And all the wrongs that we see now will one day be righted. And so we have a confidence for the future. 
In this verse, in this passage here, he wants to iterate the importance of running and pursuing joy by first resisting the distraction of legalism. Next week, we're going to see how he encourages us to pursue and fight for joy by resting in the righteousness of God. And then third, two weeks from now, we're going to see how Paul wants us to run with vigor as we pursue joy. Now today in verse 1, we see that Paul says that to remind us to rejoice in the Lord is no trouble for him, and it's a safety for us. It's safe for us. What does he mean by that? Why does he say it's safe for us if he tells us and reminds us to rejoice in the Lord? Because, first and foremost, he understands that rejoicing in the Lord is our key strength. Rejoicing in the Lord is what makes us strong. We are actually strengthened by the act of reflecting on, meditating on, delighting in our great Savior. Indeed, Nehemiah 8.10 very memorably tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Christians are incredible. We can go through gulags, death camps, tornado losses, And come out praising. Why? Because as we reflect upon the person and the work of God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we are strengthened. Movie quote time. It's kind of like the recent Batman versus Superman movie where Superman's out in space, the atomic bomb has just gone off and he's just floating in space. And then the sun comes and the rays of the sun hit his body and what happens? He's re-strengthened. His fuel cells are recharged and he returns to earth with incredible vigor. And that's us. If we take our eyes off of God and if we stop reflecting on who God is, and if we stop rejoicing in all that God has done, is doing, and will do, we will find ourselves depleted and running on empty. You want fuel for life? You want fuel to get you through the uphill battles you're facing? You don't need a self-help book so much as you need to reflect upon the character and greatness of God. As a Christian, at a very spiritual, supernatural level, that will strengthen you. So this is why Paul says, it's no trouble for me, and it's safety for you. Safety for you. We are reminded in this passage that as we rejoice in the Lord, individually and collectively, we are able to, to delight in Him. And that's what's going to help us as we resist the distraction of legalism. Now, where, where does this even come from? The, the, the change from 3.1 to 3.2 is so abrupt. 
that, I mean, several, several liberal commentators believe that this sudden change of tone reflects that what we have here is, 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 is a, an apocryphal thing suddenly inserted into the text. And that's just not true. Paul understands very clearly that as we are on the path of fighting for joy, as we are trying to pursue Christ, as we are trying to draw closer to him, remember, Christ is our joy. And as we learn in chapter 1, you will only live for Christ and face dying as gain if your joy is Christ. And so that is something that needs to be relentlessly pursued throughout your entire existence. And in the process of that, along comes things that are going to try to take your eyes off that. And legalism is one of the big things. Legalism and the legalists who preach legalism will come along and they will do everything to divert your attention from that pursuit of joy and they will derail your mission. Just like I was derailed by that second baseman. Now, legalism is one of those things that is so perditious. It's one of those things that we repeatedly find ourselves struggling with. At a very human level, we can sometimes think that legalism is something we only struggle with on the front end of Christianity. That, oh, to be saved you have to do this. But oftentimes in Christian circles, you find it sneaking around the back door on the back side of Christianity. Oh, if you're really a part of the people of God, you've got to do this. And it distracts. It causes division. It causes doubt. It causes discouragement. We all know legalism's bad. Legalism is a dirty word, isn't it? I don't know any legalist who's willing to call themselves a legalist. All right? But legalism is there. It's bound up in our hearts. The covenant of works is written on our hearts. Do this and live is written into the very fabric of the created being, or the created order. The, comp- the, the, the concept that we keep score, that if you do more good than bad, then good things will come. The idea of working and earning and wages and, and merit, that stuff is part and parcel of the created world. And it is so natural to us that we quite naturally slip into it. The concept of works is not foreign to us. It is grace that is foreign to us. The concept of someone getting what they don't deserve, that is foreign. And that is offensive to us, especially if we struggle with legalism. Oh... We love believing that there's something we can do to make God treat us better. I've seen churches where there's literally lines drawn at the entrance to the sanctuary where this indicates how long your skirt must be to enter. I've seen churches with a picture of the approved haircut. I've seen a man in a 
hospital, dying of cancer, railing against God. How could God have let me get cancer after I served Him all these years? Sometimes it's stated boldly. You have to do this to be saved. Sometimes it's the implicit understanding that if I do good, God will keep bad things from happening to me. Whether it's subtle or whether it's brazen, the idea is that holiness can be quantified on a scale by observable criteria and that one's position with God can be improved or worsened depending on how one behaves. And that destroys. So, in this passage, in verses 2 and 3 then, Paul comes down hard and heavy. And so in verse 2, we're going to see that legalists are rejected. And in verse 3, we're going to see that legalism is refuted. So in verse 2, legalists are rejected. In verse 3, legalism is refuted. Look with me at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's verse 2. Now, he comes out of the gate swinging, doesn't he? Three times he uses, it's translated in the ESV, look out. He introduces each clause, look out for, look out for, look out for. The threefold repetition in Scripture is always used to indicate a superlative degree. In other words, he is saying, watch out for these guys. Beware of them. If you see them coming, run the other way. They are dangerous. They are dangerous. And then in our day, you know, I'm not here to say that we shouldn't be, you know, genteel and respectful, but I always hear these voices of, 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 of moderate sensibility that when, when you have an opponent, you should always be prim and proper and assume the best. And you want to have a reasoned discussion with them because you want to come to understanding and perhaps find the merits of their position. And you never, ever, ever engage in ad hominem attacks. Raise your hand if you've heard. That's how you dialogue. And then I look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Now, are we here witnessing Paul unhinged? Is this the apostle gone wild? No. Remember, Paul has been dealing with legalists for the better part of a decade. They have been on his heels, coming in behind him everywhere he goes, sowing discord. Everywhere he goes. And it's evil. And he knows there's a point at which you're not having a reasoned discussion for understanding anymore. The lines are clear. And it's time to call it what it really is. And so here Paul drops the political correctness. And he takes him to task. He's not being nice. He's being good. And so Paul here, ever the preacher, puts a lot of thought into his attack. Did you know that he puts a lot of thought? He's not just throwing out mean words. He takes the platform of the legalists. 
and he turns it on its head. And everything that they either call themselves by or use to insult others, he uses that as his point of attack. And what's more, he uses alliteration. You know how sometimes, like, like today, legalists rejected, legalism refuted, right? Well, he does the same thing here. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators, they all start with the Greek letter kappa or K. So Paul is using alliteration here, okay? So he's put a lot of thought into this. Now, the legalists of his day were Judaizers. They were essentially people who said that to be saved, you had to become Jewish. It's essentially it. And so to join the people of God, you had to, first of all, be circumcised. If you didn't get circumcised, you weren't in. Period. Second, if you're in, then you have to keep all the purity laws, especially the dietary laws. And third, you had to, as a member of the people of God, keep all the ethical commands of the law of Moses, specifically the Sabbath laws. So the three pillars of the legalistic argument was that if you want to be made right with God, if you want to be viewed as holy by God, if you want to be viewed as honorable by the people of God, you have to be circumcised. You must abstain from unclean food and unclean things. And you must obey the ethical commandments of the law, specifically the Sabbath. And so what does Paul do here? He turns it on their heads. He calls them dogs. The Jews, to include the Judaizers, usually referred to Gentiles as dogs. Not because they were worthless people, but because dogs in that age were these semi-wild things that would lurk in between the buildings and in the alleyways and eating refuge, eating bodies eating trash. They were scavenging animals. And so they would use the word dog to refer to this unclean, dirty thing that defiled themselves. So these legalists are priding themselves on how ceremonially clean we are. We're so pious. You are the dog. You are the unclean one. And evildoers. He takes the word doer, which is doer of the law, actually, and he throws on the word evil on front of it because they prided themselves on how ethically pure they were. They kept the law of Moses, specifically the Sabbath laws. You can look at the Gospels and see how over the, over the top they were about keeping the Sabbath laws. That they got mad at Jesus for so much as healing somebody on the Sabbath. And so they're so proud of themselves for being doers of the law. And Paul says, in actuality, you are evildoers because you're using it as a standard for people to think that they're right in God's eyes. And you're using it as a metric by which you can claim that someone is not right in God's eyes and you heap guilt on people. And so you're an evildoer. And lastly, 
He calls them the mutilators. Now, they pride themselves on calling, they call themselves the circumcision. In fact, in the very next verse, he, he applies it to believers. They called themselves the circumcision because, oh, we're in covenant with God. It's the most sacred rite of Judaism. And so they prided themselves on the fact that they were part of the people. They were faithful to the covenant with Moses. Oh, we have undergone the bloody ritual. And they would refer to the mutilators as these pagans. And in, in these, in these weird pagan mystical religions, they would engage in flailing themselves, cutting themselves, making weird marks on their bodies as signs of penance and, 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 and devotion to their deities. And so they would scornfully deride the pagans. And so Paul, knowing that they are proud of their circumcision, he doesn't use the word for circumcised, he uses the word for mutilators, and he applies it to the fact that they're placing so much hope on their circumcision. In other words, all this stuff you're putting into the concept of circumcision is essentially nothing more in God's sight than pagan markings and signs. You who take the sign of Moses and make it a sign of acceptability to God, when in the Old Testament itself, circumcision is seen as pointing to something inward. Did you know that? That even as early as Leviticus, Moses writes of the need for their hearts to be circumcised. In Deuteronomy, we're specifically told that God needed to circumcise their hearts. Fast forward to Jeremiah nearly a thousand years later, and there's, it's throughout there, but in Jeremiah 9.25, God says he's going to judge those who are merely circumcised in body. So even the Old Testament, which they so claim to adore, testified to the fact that there's something more than mere physical circumcision but they're preaching it as necessary for being acceptable with God and as a valid part of the body of God's people. And Paul has no room for that. So their platform of this is how you stand before God rightly, Paul flips it on its head and says, in actuality, everything you hold dear, because it undermines Christ, is actually worthless. You are defiled. You are the ones who are acting like pagans. And you are the ones who are engaged in acts of evil. Now, I've just explained their platform. And sure, it's wrong, but, but why does Paul come down so hard on it? Why? I mean, it's not like they denied Jesus. They said you had to believe in Jesus. Did you know that? The Judaizers said you had, Jesus was the one, Jesus took the place of the animal sacrifices in their mind. You had to have faith in Jesus. Paul comes down on it so hard because Jesus plus something equals nothing. If you think for a minute that you need Jesus plus some sort of ritual or some sort of religious act or some sort of uh, good deed to be right in God's sight, then you may as well not have Jesus at all. Because you call God a liar. Because God says that his son's sacrifice was acceptable in his sight 
And the reason Jesus raised from the dead was to prove that his sacrifice was sufficient for all our sins. And so if you believe that it's Jesus plus something, then you've just basically taken away Jesus and you're left with nothing. In terms of standing before God, justified, it's Jesus plus nothing else. Second, Paul comes down hard on it because legalism is always focused on externals. Think about it. Legalism always focuses on things that you can perceive with the senses. You can see how others are dressed. You can see what others are doing. You can hear what others are saying. You can smell how much perfume do they have on. Or they've been smoking. Or they've been drinking. You can perceive with the senses. And so legalism is primarily concerned with characteristics about you that you can perceive with those same senses. And it leaves the inside totally untouched. Which is exactly why Jesus was able to call the religious leaders whitewashed tombs. On the outside, oh, so clean. Beautiful works of art. But inside filled with rot. And God is concerned with the inside. And so legalism can't even begin to touch the inside. So that's why it's bad. Third, legalism depreciates our sense of grace. Or to frame it again, legalism decreases your sense of need for grace. Legalism makes grace seem unimpressive to you because why wouldn't God give me a little bit of help? I'm doing a great job keeping his commandments. Of course God's going to give me a little forgiveness when I mess up. Of course he is. But then it makes it offensive to us on the other end when we see God giving favor to someone who we believe doesn't deserve it. Isn't that what... Jesus talks about when he talks about the guy who goes and hires people at different times of the day, remember? And, you know, oh, work for me for the day and I'll give you a day's wage, okay? Remember what happens, how the people react when God gives the same wage to the people who'd only worked like an hour? They're incensed. And we are too when we find God blessing someone who we think doesn't deserve it. Grace is unappealing to people who think they're basically good. And legalism will cause you to believe that you're basically good. Or on the flip side, it will crush you under guilt when you think that you cannot measure up. Either way, it deceives you and it takes your eyes off of running for joy. Legalism leads to exclusion in the body. How's that? Because we're called to honor what God honors. And if we believe that God honors people who keep their hair cut just right, God honors people who don't drink, smoke, or chew, or girls go with girls who do, and go to the movies, and go to the dances, and whatever. And if we're called to honor that, well, then what do we say about the person who slips off to the dance? Oh, they're in sin. And so they should be excluded because we don't want to 
give honor to that which God finds offensive. And so it leads to exclusion. Lastly, it leads us to looking at our circumstances instead of to God's promises. Precisely because legalism is focused on externals, we tend to associate the signs of God's pleasure with those same external factors. So when I'm living right and life is going well, well, God's pleased with me. In fact, I remember when I got, uh, when, when back in 2009, when, when, when the army accounting system discovered that they had underpaid me for eight years, and they just dropped a woohoo in my check account, people were like, that's what you get for living right. As if I, no, that's not because I was living right. It's because I, I guess, did good enough to not get fired long enough that they were able to find the error and go back and pay me. But, I mean, but we focus on externals and our circumstances. And so when things are going well, well, God's just giving you what you got coming because he's rewarding you for right living. What about when life makes that distinct flushing sound? And you find yourself in the whirlpool going down. People start then wondering what hidden sin is going on in their life. And you will be tempted to do a little soul searching yourself. What am I doing wrong that I'm being disciplined for? And more than one person will be willing to come along and help you figure out what you're doing wrong. That's what legalism does. Now, Paul is not addressing the notion that believers should be holy. When we model God's characteristics, that displays the glory of God, and it's beautiful. He's talking about people who think that their standing before God is enhanced because they're doing things. See the difference between holiness and pursuit of joy and uh, conformity to rules because you want to impress people and show God how serious you are. That's a difference. So because of how dangerous it is, Paul just refutes them. He identifies them and he says, no more discussion. Their message is deadly. No discussion. Don't listen to it. No matter how reasoned it sounds, and yes, they sounded intelligent, don't listen to it. Ignore it, it will distract you. But then he goes further and he refutes the legalism in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Don't you just love those books and those movies where, where there's a twist and the person you thought was good. For example, remember the movie Monsters Incorporated? What a, what a, what a great movie. And remember, there's, there's uh, the, the boss, uh, the, uh, Henry J. Waternoose III. He's the executive of the company, and he's, all, he's a nice guy. And so it's almost surprising when it's revealed that he's the chief bad guy. And oh, and then, and then Roz, remember that? She, your lack of response is really assuring 
she's this dumpy old little clerk who files reports. But at the end, remember, she's revealed to be like the undercover head of the entire agency. I love a twist. And here's the greatest twist of all. We, we unsuspecting, un, unimpressive, ragtag, motley crew of misfits who come from crazy backgrounds, have crazy stories, have crazy experiences. We are the circumcision of God. We are the ones who are accepted in God's sight. We are the ones who stand in his presence. We are the ones who, are, who he delights in, who are clean. Isn't that great? What a twist. It isn't the people who can trace their pedigree back three generations of ministers and I'm related to the first Presbyterian minister in this country. That's good for you. But you know what? We are the circumcision of God. And it's irrespective of your story. It's irrespective of whatever decisions you have made, the mistakes. You may even bear the consequences still of mistakes made in the past. And God still says, you are the circumcision. And there are three characteristics of those who are of the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit. We recognize that we are sustained by the Spirit of God. We don't focus on the external rules and conformity. We don't have set standards of attire. If you want to come in jeans and a t-shirt, come. If you want to shave your head, do it. If you want to grow a beard, I really encourage it. <laughs> but if not, hey, we're free. Because we recognize that we live because of the Spirit of God. And we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are empowered. We are sealed by the Spirit of God as opposed to the dead letter of the law. Second, he calls us those who glory in Christ Jesus. It's not just that we believe in Jesus. Oh, there's lots of people who will believe in Jesus. To an extent, Muslims believe in Jesus. He's not God. But they believe that Jesus was a prophet. No, we glory in Jesus. What can we say and do that makes what Jesus did for us look great? How can we live so that way we are accepting one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, making his sacrifice look for us marvelous and life-changing? We glory in the fact that our righteousness is him, not ourselves, not our code of conduct. We glory in it. That's our boasting right there. Jesus. And lastly, we put no confidence in the flesh. Now by the flesh, he means anything that's in your experience, anything that you could do, anything that you could conceive. We put no hope in that. Now that really causes us to have to pause because how much do we really put our hope in our stuff? in our past, in our experiences, in our lineage, in our education, in our pocketbook, in our friends, in our nation. We sometimes do more than we think. And sometimes it isn't until we're under pressure that we can see that we were putting hope in these things. 
But I would suggest to you that in those moments, those are God's gifts to you to recognize it and get rid of that false hope. It's just clutter that'll distract you along the way. And delight in what Jesus has done for you. You don't get better in God's sight because of the decisions that your grandchildren make. You get better in God's sight by the less you think of yours. Do you glory in Jesus? Is Jesus your everything? If so, don't be distracted then when the legalists come and tell you that to be right with God or that you're not quite holy enough because we've got it all quantified out here on a chart for you here. And if you, if you want to move from believer to disciple, well, here's what you got to do. If you want to move from God's B team to his A team, here's what you got to do. This is what your life will look like. Reject that. It's just distractions. It's the second baseman doing the floppy dance. Keep your eye on the ball. And brothers and sisters, if you can avoid the distraction of legalism, your race and our time together will be a lot better and we'll do a lot less navel-gazing because we will be focused on the great brilliance that is the glorious Son of God who was crucified, dead, buried, and then raised and exalted for us. He is our boasting, not our own attempts at being good. Let's pray.